0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin, I'm a senior policy fellow here at ECFR, and I'm standing in for a few weeks for this podcast's regular host, our director, Mark Leonard. Our subject today is the Franco German relationship, often described as the engine that drives the European Union forward. Next week in Aachen, France and Germany will sign a Treaty of Cooperation that's being billed as Élysée 2.0. That's a reference to the foundational Élysée Treaty that was signed by Chancellor Konrad Adenauer and President Charles de Gaulle in 1963 that set the seal on the two countries' reconciliation after World War II. The new treaty pledges even deeper cooperation between France and Germany at the heart of the EU across a range of economic, foreign and security policies. But the treaty comes at a time when Europe is facing increasing challenges, both internationally and at home, and including within France and Germany themselves. So is this new Aachen Treaty more likely to prove a, a new beginning or a false dawn? With me to discuss this, we have... Manuel Lafond-Rapnui, head of ECFR's Paris office, Almut Müller, co-head of our Berlin office, and also from Berlin, Tom Nuttall, Berlin correspondent of The Economist, and before that, the Brussels correspondent. So, Manuel, if I can come to you first, um, you know, how, how significant is the treaty in itself? How far will this move things along beyond the, the current position?
1: Well, the first thing is, officially, um, the, the text of the treaty is, has not been published yet. Uh, and that gives uh, um, room for a lot of speculation in France, where people believe, for instance, that Macron is about to sell Alsace and Lorraine, the eastern region of France, to, to Germany. Uh, in the current context of fake news, this is a, a good example. But from what uh, you are able to gather when you talk to the people who actually uh, know the treaty or who can give you a, a quick glimpse to the text, it's actually, as you said, an add-on to the Élysée Treaty from 1963. It's not a substitute, but it adds to it. And it adds to it for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is that since 1963, what the Élysée Treaty was bound to to do was uh, basically a, a mutual promise uh, to cooperate, not just re- formalized reconciliation, but moving forward more consultation, closer cooperation, etc. And this has been the case. So, the, the the treaty is building on that. It's also taking into account the fact that the EU is here, uh, and that's the the degree of European cooperation is much further than it was in the early sixties. And it adds this goal uh, that the drafters. Uh, in mind, which is uh, some degree of, of maybe not integration, but convergence between the two countries, especially in the economic areas. So it's not a revolution. There's a lot that is just there to take stock of what is already practiced, but just puts it in a treaty
0: and tries to build uh, upon that. Almut, would you say from Berlin the perceptions are the same of what this treaty is, is designed to do?
2: Let me just say, as, um, Manuel pointed out from what we know, um, yes, in terms of substance, um, there is no uh, revolution perhaps, but there is a few interesting, um, uh, points about the Franco-German future cooperation in an environment that has already been shaped quite a bit by Paris and Berlin over the past decades. Um, I'd like to say, um, one important, uh, sort of, you know, looking back at history, one important uh, theme strikes me as, um, as almost, uh, Funny, and that is when uh, the German Bundestag back in the days uh, discussed the Elysee Treaty in the first place, there was a strong push in Germany to um, put a preamble in front of it saying, well, while we're all doing this with uh, France, we reiterate that we're really interested in the United Kingdom joining the European Union, as well as strengthening the transatlantic alliance, which didn't go down that well in in Paris. And isn't that very interesting that uh, right now, as the UK is on its way out, and we don't really know where the U.S. is headed. France and Germany, uh, almost in a natural way, say, "Well, still the European sort of framework is ours, and we want to shape that." Um, so, you know, in terms of history, I think that is sort of an important uh, thing to look uh, to look back to and to tie that into the present. Now, um, of course, this is more than just a treaty between governments, and it has been uh, more than that, at least from the German perspective. I mean, I consider myself almost a product of, you know, the societal aspect uh, of this. Um, it has been the case with the Elysée Treaty, and it continues also to be the case, I believe, with the uh, Traité d'Aix-la-Chapelle now, um, that there is a strong emphasis on bringing our societies together. So, um yes, there is an interstate, intergovernmental mental element to it. But there is also a strong ambition to work um, on, you know, tying together our uh, societies on creating joint uh, institutions of cultural exchange of uh, creating cross border activities. And this in the German political culture, um, at least as I can say, uh, is something that is a focus point, of course, you know, this is part of the, the political sort of education that our um, kids get in school, you know, so we are, we're not really only looking at something that is Intergovernmental, but that is sort of a more comprehensive idea about uh, France and Germany in Europe. So I think this is this is important to keep in mind. Um, and then, I mean, if we want to look at uh, a bit more in detail, Anthony, at what's um, what is uh, in terms of substance part of this uh, traité daix la Chapelle. From what we know, indeed. Um, there is not only symbolism but there is at least ambition to also um, use windows of opportunity for France and Germany to shape um, within the EU context within the UN um, but also I think there is a strong urgency this treaty is relevant in its symbolism but the urgency is really in the doing so um, the judgment I think will really be on whether it can deliver immediately on visibly strengthen Franco-German cooperation and from what we have seen over the past months there is a lot of
0: work to do. Yes, um, and Tom, coming to you, I guess, uh, you know, picking up on what Ahmed said there, um, you know, this treaty must be seen in in its context. Um, And, you know, as Ahmed also said, there's a sense of urgency. Now, presumably that is a response to a rather difficult context, Um, both the, the rise of Trump in the United States, the possible, we can't say more than that, uh, departure of the United Kingdom from the EU, and uh, you know, a general climate in which the the values and the ways of working at the EU uh, seem perhaps somewhat out of step with the times. So, would you? How do you see this within the you know within the European position overall?
3: That is the context, and I think that is why um, the symbolic value of this. Uh, treaty is significant. Um, I mean, the the general take, and it's a take that we, the Economist, um, have adopted as well, is that in terms of content, substance, there's not really a lot here. There's a bit of stuff on defence and security. Uh, Some of the cross-border proposals um, on uh, uh, convergence and sort of making the border disappear in the everyday life of people who live in border regions um, amounts to something that there's a separate agreement between parliaments to establish a a cross-border assembly, which potentially could turn into something interesting. But certainly compared to some of the expectations that people had about the renewal of the Franco-German engine when Emmanuel Macron um, was inaugurated, a president who surrounded himself with Germanophiles who – barely took a breath without thinking about how it was going to be perceived in Berlin first. Um, there were a lot of expectations about renewal then. Um, they haven't really come to very much. I think there's a, quite a lot of disappointment in Paris um, on a number of issues, on Eurozone reform. that hasn't really progressed very much, on the digital tax, much heralded. France is now going it alone on that. Um, so overall, there's not really a lot to get your teeth into um, with this um, uh, with, with this uh, so called Arkan treaty, but at the time at, at the, given the context that you described both inside Europe um, and outside, there is an important symbolic value to these two countries that remain the most important countries in the eu as it were reaffirming their vows to one another and I think this w- one thing I would add is that um although uh i think uh a, a lot of, you occasionally hear grumbles from some other european countries about sort of franco german stitch ups or a duanverat um uh Uh, acting alone and then expecting everybody else to come along with them. On the whole, I don't think that there's too much resentment from uh, governments in in Europe that remain committed to the European Union because they know that um, that this is a sort of a necessary condition for a deepening of integration. That said, um, we're operating, uh, obviously, in a very different context when you have 28 member states and when you have six, when the Elysee Treaty was signed. And that means that this is some type – that although this is a necessary condition for integration, it's not a sufficient one. And the dividing line, uh, the sort of north-south dividing line that the Franco-German relationship has often been a microcosm of is in many respects less relevant now. If you think about issues like migration or rule of law, um, striking a Franco-German compromise on these sorts of issues is perhaps going to be less potent than it might be in some of the economic or single market issues that we've seen in the past.
0: So I I guess there are two issues, one of which is how far France and Germany are aligned in themselves. Um, and moving on beyond that, how far they, you know, to the degree that they are, that then provides a, a sufficient direction for the rest of the EU. But just sticking with that first question, Manuel, do you, do you get the sense from Paris that, you know, that there is really a, a convergence to build on here? Or is that notion that... You know that the French are a little bit disappointed with the response that they've had from from Chancellor Merkel and from Germany. Does that persist underneath the the kind of um, you know the rhetoric and the ceremonial of this treaty?
1: I, I'm sure there uh,
0: there are a lot of frustration
1: uh, on the French side when Macron did his Sorbonne speech. I don't think he believed that it would take so much time to get a German government and then it would get so much time to get a response from the German government and then it would get so much time to uh, put the two, the couple, the Franco-German engine, as you mentioned, into action. But I'm sure that uh, Macron and his team and his government and his advisors have a sense that it's the whole EU that is a much more... Uh, complex and difficult uh, environment and that uh, uh, in this context they, they believe uh, that the Franco-German relationship is still uh, indispensable, is still the key to start the engine of further European integration. So they try to put a good face and they try to move on. We had the most recent example is when there was this discussion about on the tax on the GAFAM, on, on digital activities where the French thought that uh, we could move uh, uh, forward quite quickly, and then the Germans' reluctance pushed towards some compromise that this is postponed to a few years now, with the priority being that we don't set up a European tax, but we try to work for an international tax, and only if the global tax doesn't work, then we'll work on the, on the European tax. You have a number of such instances where the French come with big ideas, and, and the, from the French perspective, in uh, any case, the German response is a bit underwhelming. At least this is where things are, are moving on. If you take, if you make the list of what has been happening since Macron and Merkel are working together, it's not nothing. It's just, as, as uh, Almud says, there's a lot about the framework, there's less about the doing, and what happens on the doing, uh, on defense, on tax uh, on harmonization, on business law harmonization, is somewhat underwhelming with compared to the kind of traction and momentum that you would need in the current uh, 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 difficult uh, European environment, for sure.
0: Almut, do you see uh, do you see that as a, a fair assessment? And do you get the sense from Germany that there remains a kind of difference of strategic vision between the two countries? I mean, clearly, there is a big emphasis on foreign policy on security policy in this new treaty? You know, is there enough of a, of a convergence of, of worldview um, to build on there?
2: Well, I believe that uh, Germans have come to learn that really this is a very competitive environment now, not only in economic terms, where we are a lot more comfortable um, with German power, but um, also in terms of security. Um, obviously, the Germans are moving not fast enough, uh, I believe, to the frustration of our neighbors um and other partners in the European Union but there is a very serious uh, i think bit also um in the in the new treaty that says um we can not only talk about uh, strengthening our joint cooperation but we actually have to do it um and uh, a number of projects um you know which which will hopefully then also see the the light of the day I just um wanted to add uh, Anthony to the debate um something that I deem is is important and that is there is an additional um uh, ambition and that is the one between the French and the German parliaments. Um, there is in parallel the declaration on a, um, a joint Franco-German parliamentary uh, corporation that will also be signed, that has already been published and submitted at the end of last year. Um, on the German side, it has been sort of uh, pushed forward um, and sort of uh, orchestrated by the president of the German Bundestag, Wolfgang Schäuble, former finance uh, minister, uh, longest standing member of the German parliament, and of course a very known figure in the Franco-German context. And why do I think this is also a very important aspect? Um, the Germans have had a great deal of interest in you know pushing forward the role and the importance of the German Bundestag on issues related to the European Union, uh, most importantly on the Eurozone. And um, you know, this could really be a starting point. There is uh, talk about a joint assembly that is regularly meeting, pushing forward joint initiatives, etc., to strengthen parliamentary control of the things that are being done together in the EU context. I just wanted to mention that because uh, there will be talk about that in the coming week as well. And I think it really deserves a a closer look here. Now, um, in terms of the overall assessment of where France and Germany are at right now, I couldn't agree more with Manuel. I mean, it was almost painful here, sitting here in Berlin at times um uh, to have you know first a very odd sort of response to the Sorbonne speech um as if uh, emmanuel macron had put together a, a mere shopping list um you know to say okay these are the things that we need to do i mean it was a much bigger vision it wasn't really perceived like that here um and that was already strange um of course there uh, was a, a painful sort of lack of response um it is important of course to do things in substance but it's also very important to to sort of find a joint symbolism you know of being at ice level between France and Germany and I remember the um Moment in which Emmanuel Macron, when he was already the president uh, of uh, the French Republic, received the Prix Charlemagne in Aix-la-Chapelle, and um, Angela Merkel gave the speech uh, on this occasion. Really, I mean, this was a, a, an absolutely missed opportunity to create that Franco-German symbolism. Um, together, it was really a poor sort of uh, speech, and and there was nothing there, and the whole thing was just uh, disappointing. I think France and Germany found a little bit more of this sort of um, symbolic importance of their relationship um, in the uh, centenary um, commemorations. Uh, We all remember Angela Merkel and Macron, President Macron uh, together in France uh, and then later on the German and French presidents here in in Berlin. Um, You know, so on the level of symbols and sort of at ICE level, uh, we I think we're good, but in substantive uh, EU politics, I think there's a lot, a lot of work, a lot of frustration, probably also on the side of the Germans, um, as much as on the side of Paris, um, but both know that in this environment where the world is changing dramatically, Um, If France and Germany don't manage to do things together substantively that make a difference, then this is really um, a moment in which, you know, we cannot take for granted that the Union is going to going to prevail and going to be a shaping factor in the world. Um, So there is a sense of urgency that is felt. Um, I think the jury for me is still out there, whether, you know, there is also the political energy uh, to do things that are really needed. I mean, my reading of what I've heard on the uh, Elysee Treaty is that there is a lot less on what is needed on eurozone reform there is more on things bilaterally in this in this field which might be an interesting substitute to sort of reiterate France and Germany are willing to still stick to that goal even though reform is not substantially uh, substantively possible right now uh, in in the overall eurozone so you know th- I'd like to hope <laughs> that that these are all good signs um, but yet again I mean w- what we see you know in the light of the day then in terms of substance that is really the most important piece
0: Tom, from, from what we gather, there's quite a strong emphasis in the treaty on the importance of multilateralism. And as we know, one of the kind of watchwords around Europe this year is the notion of Europe reclaiming its sovereignty, its autonomy and ability to act independently in a world where the United States uh, doesn't look like such a, a reliable ally as before. Do you see the the Franco-German relationship as the the kind of... An effective building block on which the the EU can come together to to forge a more united kind of approach to to the world based on its multilateral vision.
3: Um, I think that is interesting and, and important. I, I, I don't think there's a lot about it in um, in the treaty. Uh, there, there is a rather dispiriting commitment by the French to back a permanent seat for the Germans on the UN Security Council. And you can just imagine how that's going to go down in the rest of the world. But, um, but, uh, but more broadly, um, I think, I, I think, I, I think what, what's interesting here is that there is a shift in the German position. And w- what I'm thinking about uh, in particular is the sense that whereas uh, France has traditionally had a rather sort of sovereigntyist attitude to um, things like sort of national industrial champions um, uh, the need to use the, the muscle of the state to put the muscle of the state behind industries so that firms can compete globally. That has traditionally been frowned upon in Germany as sort of anti-competitive. Um, now, I think that um, particularly in the light of a, a, an increasingly assertive China um, and the fears amongst some German firms that China is coming to eat their lunch, I think that that position is starting to shift. In Germany. Uh, There was an important report, I think it was last week, from uh, the BDI, the largest German industrial lobby, um, with um, uh, 50 or so suggestions um, for how Germany ought to respond to the growing threat from China. Um, there's a very interesting discussion taking place right now over the proposed merger of the rail operations of uh, Siemens and Alstom, uh, German and French firms, which both governments are backing very strongly as a response to what they consider to be that they, they want to build up a sort of a, a European industrial um, champion to, to, to take on the potential threat from uh, Chinese competitors. Now, this is, uh, Margaret, to vestia the competition commissioner in brussels um is very skeptical about this uh, but both governments are pushing it quite heavily um and there's a a big discussion in brussels right now over whether this is going to take place personally i find it hard to imagine that the germans would have supported a move like this with such gusto um even five years ago and i think now uh the Germans are moving in a French direction. Uh, this is very much in the, um, in the Emmanuel Macron line and not only him, but um, his finance minister and other people in his government, too. So I think this is a very interesting point of potential convergence. I think we'll probably see, start to see the Germans shift further in this direction in the future. And so this sort of whole European sovereignty area, particularly when it comes to um, uh, to building up national or European champions, is definitely an area to watch.
0: Now, clearly, there's a, this treaty reflects in large part a a real will, I think, on the part of both leaders to, to show their commitment to this relationship and, you know, their desire to, to work together with each other. Um, but there has to be a question, surely, about how far these leaders are able at this point to make a commitment that, you know, that brings their country with them. Um, Chancellor Merkel is, you know, is, kind of clearly in one way or another in the waning years of her of her leadership. Um, and in France, uh, President Macron is is challenged by a series of popular demonstrations with Gilje um So do we see, you know, are these leaders really strong enough to to make a a commitment that will be seen as as binding their countries and not just their own personal kind of instincts. Uh, Almut, why don't you talk first on that?
2: You know, it's already. I find it slightly disconcerting that yet again, you know, you see a lot of discussion here now in Germany about the uh, Yellow Vest movement. You know, questioning the ability of uh, Macron to deliver. I mean, let's face it, this is not a clinical environment. France and Germany and all other EU member states are operating. This is this is a political environment. It's it's increasingly sort of one of contestation rather of than of you know of fragmentation rather than of cooperation. And of course, I mean, uh, these politicians are always bound to what, you know, the domestic environment is about. But uh, I think it's really important not to waste too much time on on this uh, uh, right now, because, you know, in Germany, at least, I see more time spent on, you know, the questions of whether one or the other side can deliver, uh, rather than actually, you know, d- trying to look at what, uh, for instance, Tom just uh, pointed out uh, in an interesting way, you know, that there is actually uh, some uh, stuff where we could see convergence. So let's rather get our teeth also, as we are talking about these things you know um into into actually what you know what can be done and uh, not yet again another round of uh, discussing uh, are the yellow Vests going to bring uh, macron down uh, germans are always very good at assessing you know even in the wider uh, public here you know the the, the state of, of france i wonder whether that's uh, true in germany as well um you know let's let's really focus on the key business
0: and from Paris, Manuel. I mean, you you talked about the kind of fake news aspect, and you know clearly there is a sort of, you know, a wave of nationalism um, rebounding around some countries more strongly perhaps than others. Um, this represents a, a further advance in intergovernmentalism and a kind of real merging between different countries. Is that um, likely to be a source of contestation? So, of course, there is some of that in
1: France. There is also the fact that a lot of the criticism against the EU, uh, especially from the far left or from the extreme right, uh, are targeting Germany uh, uh, in particular. And the fact that they are criticizing the French government for trying to uh, get along uh, too much with the German rather than uh, confront Germany or ally with with others. So there is a dimension of that. But at the same time, you have this poll, which just was released uh, uh, this week earlier, about the, the perception, the French perception of Germany. And the French perception of Germany across the broader public is actually quite positive in general and is positive also politically in terms of the need to work with Germany in the European context. So there is some of that, but that is certainly not uh, as uh, uh spread all over the place, as uh, one would think if you just look at the current political turmoil uh, in France. Second, I think that there is this method by Macron uh, to his European policy that is certainly confirming the central uh, uh, role that the Franco-German cooperation should be playing. And that is why uh, he proposed this treaty when he did his Sorbonne speech, the the aix la Chapelle Treaty, uh, uh, is a proposal coming from the, the Sorbonne speech uh, from Macron in uh, in the fall of uh, 2017. But it's interesting to see that part of his European policy has also been to strengthen bilateral relations with others. And for instance, and that's uh, all the more uh, relevant given the current state of uh, French uh, uh, Franco-Italian uh, relations, he has proposed that there should be a Quirinal Treaty, the Quirinal being the Italian equivalent more or less of the Elysee, about the, the bilateral relationship uh, between uh, France and Italy. And and he certainly insists in making that Franco-German relation not exclusive. He believes that it is central, that it is it, indispensable, but he understands that it is not necessary and that France needs to reach out, not only to the usual uh, partner like the so-called founding members of, uh, of uh, the European uh, construction, but also the new members, which are not that new uh, anymore. And for instance, Macron often, often insists that he visited Finland for the first time in 31 years, while Finland has been uh, part of, um, of the EU for now more than uh, 25 years. Uh, so there, there is an element of uh, Macron's idea that he not just for domestic uh, reasons, that there's a need to prove that this relationship is not exclusive. And actually, Macron's advisors often point out that actually Merkel has been doing that for a number of years, that Germany in general has been better and more committed to building a network of bilateral relationships uh, that, than the French have, uh, and that France needs to, to kind of rebalance uh, its asset, not by downgrading the franco-german uh, relationship and these uh, treaties uh, evidence that on the contrary they want to push it further but bearing in mind that there's also a need to push further the rest of the bilateral relationship so that you can actually achieve something at the collective level at the eu level
0: so so this renewal of vows as it was described earlier in this broadcast is not uh an exclusive relationship, but more something at the heart of a, a wider process of, of coalition building. and uh
1: Part of the challenge is that uh, others in the EU may be tempted to frame that treaty and that uh, uh, Franco-German relationship precisely as being exclusive. And so it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But uh, uh, Macron's advisors, and I'm sure Merkel's uh, uh, team also, insist that it should not be the case and that's not what they they want to achieve
0: right well that's uh, that's something to watch and but surely at the beginning of what looks like a you know a testing year for the EU we should be celebrating the this determination of countries to you know to recommit uh, the process of working more closely together um, we're at the end of our time but traditionally um, in these podcasts we close by uh, doing a quick uh, run around to to see if any of us have been reading any books or articles that we'd like to recommend, either on the subject we've discussed or more generally. Um, so, Tom, do you want to starting with you? Is there anything that you'd you'd recommend to our listeners?
3: I mean, I, I don't know if I would recommend it because it's, it's a bit like punishment reading. But um, I, no, that's not fair. I've, I've been reading um, Iron Kingdom, which is Christopher Clarke's um, epic history of Prussia, uh, starting in 1600 and running up to 1947. Um, I won't pretend that it's light reading. Um, But uh, it's extremely interesting, and especially for me as a a new arrival, as a correspondent in Germany. Um, uh, I'm currently up to the Congress of Vienna, uh, so I haven't even met Bismarck yet, so there's a long way to go. But um, apart from the fact that he weaves together very neatly um, the sort of high politics and uh, military stuff, with the um, the cultural and social developments of Prussia, so it makes for a very sort of rich, um, a, a very rich and enlightening read. Um, it also actually uh, puts the discussion that we've been having today in an interesting light, because um, while it's very easy to grouch about uh, the French and the Germans not being able to do anything on the eurozone or get a digital tax together or whatever else, when you look at the uh, if you if you take a rather broader view, um, then to look at the achievements of these two countries in forging an extraordinary um, bond of peace and reconciliation um, since the war, um, after centuries in which they'd been at each other's throats, um, then you, know, it, 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 you start to look at this whole thing a little bit more positively, I think. So, uh, so it's recommended.
0: A bit, a, a bit of historical context there. um Almed?
2: I, I mean, I praise Tom really for that, and uh, Tom, go for it. I mean, Christopher Clark, ironically being an Australian, uh, knowing uh, really much more about Prussia than anybody probably in this in this country. It's um, also quite illuminating in that. Um, He reveals that Berlin in the days was really nothing more than, you know, a sandbox and some strange backwaters. Um, So that is quite a humbling thing to know and remember when you sit here in Berlin Mitte right now. Um, I am currently reading a compilation of pieces by Denis Hügel, a a German-Turkish journalist who was... uh, is known, uh, I think now also to a wider public because he was arrested uh, completely unlawfully in Turkish jail um, for more than a year. In, uh, between 2017 and 2018 and parts uh, of the pieces he wrote uh, in prison are part of this compilation and you know it, it looks at a whole number of issues that are relevant to um, how you know societal aspects in Germany regarding uh, integration um, you know the political correctness a lot of things that uh, we are debating right now and um, yes I uh, recommend it uh, I enjoy reading it it is not an easy read in that um, there's big stuff of course uh, that is discussed uh, there and um, yeah that's what's uh, on my desk whenever I find the time it's uh, shorter pieces uh, that help me of course through that and my level of ambition in that is lower than Tom's.
0: (laughs) Thanks Albert and
1: Manuel? The best book I read recently is called La Faiblesse du Vrai it's in French Uh, it means the weakness of the truth it's by Miriam Rovodalon she's a French philosopher any book by Miriam Rovodalon is actually brilliant. This one is a latest one. It's about the, the conflict between truth and politics and how that conflict has played in democracy. And basically, the uh, 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 argument is that democracy, to protect itself from authoritarianism or totalitarianism, has always been exposed to a degree of absence of certainty, of temptation, of relativism, of the importance of opinions uh, and the plurality of opinions, uh, but right now we are in a post-truth world where truth doesn't matter, and, and she sees that as the dissolution of the possibility for a common space, for common affairs, for commonwealth, as you would say in, in English. And it's, it really is brilliant, and she, uh, including, explain how we need more imagination to get out of this post-truth trap that we are falling into, and really it's brilliant and it's a recommended reading.
0: That sounds very timely. And um, for myself, I have to confess that I'm still reading the novel that I started reading over the holidays. Um, so from Philip Roth, who died last year, I decided to get back and read one of his novels. And I'm reading um, Sabbath's Theatre, which is Philip Roth at his most outrageous and <laughs> provocative and uh, scabrous. Um, so it's uh, in that sense, if not in the you know, in the sense of some of your books it 's quite a challenging read but um, and well, one thing that I saw that i 'm hoping to read soon is there 's a new um, issue from uh, International Affairs, the journal marking one hundred years from the uh, the Versailles Treaty in one thousand nine hundred and nineteen and there 's a collection of essays on that by a really interesting group of of authors um, edited by the historian margaret macmillan so that 's my next uh, serious read. Um, and that brings our podcast for this week to an end. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Almut Müller, from Manuel Lafon-Rapnui, from Tom Nuttall, and from myself, Anthony Dworkin, it's goodbye. The researcher for ECFR's podcasts is Jonathan Hackenbridge, and our editor is Katerina Botel at Scenaro.